0: Oh, man, I'm going to be honest with you. I'd rather hold her than preach right now, but uh, she is cute. All right, back to the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and starting in verse 38, we've been tracking through this sermon and uh, and really, um, uh, really looking at what Jesus has to say to us. Why are we studying the Sermon on the Mount? Really to learn how to follow Jesus in a fallen world, and not only that, but ultimately to be salt and light, to be good witnesses, to be uh, people who show Jesus so that people will be attracted to him and his life and his gospel. And so Jesus has told us that he wants our righteousness to exceed that of the, of the Pharisees. And he's given six examples of what that looks like. You know, exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees doesn't mean adding more rules. It means going deeper into the truth of God, deeper into the love of God, deeper into what a life formed by God looks like. And so we've looked at things like anger and lust and divorce. And we looked at oaths last week. And this week we're looking at retaliation. Now, it is incumbent upon a pastor to speak the truth and, uh, and to tell you things that are true. And I must tell you that last week, uh, not on purpose, but I unwittingly made a promise that I'm not going to be able to keep today. And the promise that I made last week is that we would finish chapter 5, that I would finish out the last two examples of Jesus' six examples, and that is not going to happen today. And therefore, unwittingly, I lied to you, so you must pray for my forgiveness. But I am going to talk about this example of retaliation. Let me read the passage to you, and then we'll get started. Matthew five thirty-eight. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so we have here another example of a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. In what way? In being non-retaliatory, non-violent people. Now, I have to say to you, when we read these words, if we were to isolate these words and we were to look at them all on their own and not realize that it was Jesus who gave us this teaching, we would immediately disregard it and disregard the teacher who would bring it. We would think that this person who would teach us something like this is out of their mind. We would say, Turn the other cheek. Are you crazy? Go the extra mile give people all my clothes, give people all my money, that teacher is whacked out, is what we would say. However, because we know the context and we know it comes from Jesus, we're more open to consider exactly what Jesus is talking about. And what is Jesus talking about with this example of non-retaliation? Let me just say at the out front, here's what he's talking about. He's talking about a life of self-sacrifice. He's saying that in our interpersonal relationships, the key to life is self-sacrificing or walking in self-sacrificial love. Let me supplement this passage with Matthew chapter 16 and verses 24 and 25. And let me show you what I'm talking about. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16 verses 24 and 25, he says this radical thing to his disciples. Jesus told his disciples. If anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself. And take up his cross. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake. Will find it. For what will it profit a man. If he gains the whole world. And forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul. That's what he's talking about. Also in Matthew 5. He's saying listen. The Christian life. The life of a follower is a life of self denial. It's a life of picking up our cross and following Jesus. It's a life of putting others as more important than ourselves. Christianity is not an easy. Lemonade sipping, sitting on the beach. How can I get a better retirement? How can, I, how can I live a great life? How can I have great material things? How can I be a champion every day? How can I be comfortable? Christianity is losing our life to find it. It's dying to ourself. It is going the extra mile, turning the other cheek, giving up our clothes. Christianity is picking up our cross and following Jesus. I want you to know as we think about that, think about what the world teaches. The world teaches us that you can be both selfish and have a great life. That you can be selfish and have great relationships. That you can be selfish and move your way up in a great professional career. That you can be selfish and be happy and flourish as a human being. And Jesus is saying it's not true. The way to flourish, the way to find life, Is to empty yourself. The way to move forward. Is to go down. The way up is to descend. The way forward is to pick up our cross. And follow Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 1.29. For to me to live is Christ. To die is gain. That is the call of God. To your life. Every human being that Jesus encounters says. You must lose your life. To find it. That's ultimately What Jesus is talking about. Now, we'll get specific as we look at the text carefully. But a couple of things on this. Well, one thing in particular. I say, man, that's really hard. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how to get through, like, today. You know what I mean? And you're getting up there and talking about cross-bearing and turning the other cheek and getting hit. And you're talking about self-sacrifice and being selfless. I'm just trying to figure out how to hold things together. This sounds too complicated for me, too zealous, too radical, too outside of my radar. What am I supposed to do with this idea of cross-bearing and self-sacrifice? How can I even begin to think about this in my life? And I want to quote from, or I want to refer to something C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said in his book, Mere Christianity, a chapter on forgiveness, by the way. He said, you don't begin to learn mathematics by going to calculus, You learn mathematics by beginning with simple addition and subtraction. And I would say this, as we talk about radical self-sacrifice and radical self-denial and radical picking up our cross, don't begin with calculus things like, oh, I need to go to Africa and become a missionary or I need to sell everything I own and give it to the poor. Don't begin with calculus. Begin with addition and subtraction, self-denial. Maybe today the Holy Spirit is calling you to drop a grudge that you've been holding in your life in a relationship and so turn the other cheek. Maybe you're being called to forgive a grievance that happened to you 10 years ago in your heart and to give that up and to say, you know what, I'm going to surrender that grievance to God. Maybe you're called just simply to love an enemy that you haven't talked to in a long time by picking up the phone and making a phone call or sending a note or, or, or maybe you're called to stop being passive aggressive against people and making it look like you like them but really you don't. Maybe it's time to have the conversation that you've been putting off that's not as hard as you think it is. Maybe you just need to do something simple in denying yourself. And you know what will happen if you do? If you hear God speak to you in those areas, and if you respond, let me tell you something. You'll find your life. You'll find new life. You'll find better relations. You will begin to flourish the way God meant you to flourish. Self-sacrifice is the most powerful thing that God gives to us. And so I would tell you as we think about this passage, maybe think about your life and maybe some simple steps that you can take that God is calling you to take as we look at this law of non-retaliation. Now, back to the text. And one of the ways I want to describe this and prove that this passage is about our interpersonal relationships and self-sacrifice is I want to look at this passage in the controversy that it's created over the centuries as people have read it and interpreted it. And One of the ways that this passage has been interpreted is it's been interpreted as preaching and teaching a radical pacifism for Christians. And what I mean by this is that people take this passage and they say, with genuine hearts and meaning well before God, but they they think that Jesus is saying that Christians are not allowed to be violent in any context ever, ever, ever. That you should never return violence for violence. That would mean that Christians should not join the military. That would mean that Christians should not own guns. That would mean that Christians should not in any way support or be a policeman or join the Marines or any of those things. That Jesus is taking the sword out of our hand in all contexts. Now, i got to be honest with you all now. I'm from Oklahoma. Can I get an Amen. And I grew up where we wore belt buckles and boots and tight, tight jeans. And I once had a belt buckle that said, God, guns, and guts made America free. You know what I'm saying? So when I hear these interpretations, I go, Whoa, hang on now, time out. Is Jesus telling us that in no circumstance, Christians should join the military or be a policeman or any of those things? Now, I would suggest to you, That the answer, obviously, is no, I don't. Let me tell you why. First of all, in verse 38, when he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He is quoting from Old Testament law, the law of retaliation. The law of retaliation. Here's how it reads in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. This important law. This This is an important law. It says in Leviticus 24, verse 19, if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Now, here's how the Pharisees read that. The Pharisees read that as prescriptive. In other words, it was prescriptive. Prescriptive. If somebody harmed you, the law said, "Well, go harm them back according to the harm that's been done to you." When in fact, the purpose of the law in Leviticus, this law of retaliation, is that it's not prescriptive; it's restrictive. That it's for judges or courts or 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 for a mediator between two people as they go before them, and the justice system of the law would make sure that. Somebody was judged with equity. And if you took my eye, the judge would make sure you lost your eye. If you took my tooth, the judge would make sure that you lost your tooth. And what it existed for is it existed to make sure that violence would not escalate in society. Because here's what happens. If this law is not on the books in any kind of judicial system, let's say you come, you trespass my property, and I beat you up. Because you trespass. And then I beat you up, but your brother comes and kills me. Well, then my brothers go and kill all of your family. Homicide gets turned into genocide very quickly with human escalation of violence. Isn't that true? Because you know what? Everybody say, repeat after me I am, I am. A, sinner. a sinner. What's that mean? That means if you take out my eye, I'm going to take off your head. Because I'm prideful. If you take off my arm, I'm going to take off your whole body. You burn down my crops, I'll burn down your crops and your whole house. I'll scorch earth around everything around you. Because that's what human beings do. And what do we need? We need laws. And this law is important. There's no way that Jesus is telling us to get this law off the books. It's the foundation of our own civil system. And if you go anywhere in the world and this law doesn't exist in that society, you know what you're going to find? Endless civil war, starvation, famine, people killing each other, and it's all bad. I mean, everybody dies in that society that doesn't have this as a law. Because it's restrictive. It stops the escalation of violence. But what I want you to see is that in the very same book, the Levitical law, By the way, read Leviticus sometime if you're needing to fall asleep at night because it's all law. Well, and there's a lot of blood there too, which can be interesting. But Leviticus 19 verses 17 and 18, Moses indicates that God in our interpersonal relationships wants us to go as far as we can to not hate our brother. Here's what he says. He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now think about that. In one chapter, he's saying if somebody offends you, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. You're not to hate your brother. But in the next chapter, or in a couple of other chapters, he talks about this law of retaliation. There's a difference between our personal relationships and then our our political situations that get so bad that it requires a judge. The Pharisees limited the law only to the law of retaliation. But Jesus wants to get back to the spirit of what God really wants from his people, which is that we forgive as much as possible, that we love people as much as possible, that we don't harbor hate in our heart as much as possible. So when we come back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38, we see that this law of retaliation exists as a civil law. It's important. It needs to be upheld. It needs to be applied as much as possible. But for disciples in our interpersonal relationships, even Leviticus tells us that we're to love our neighbor and not harbor hatred. But that still doesn't answer the question, well, isn't Jesus telling us still to be nonviolent, to not join the military, to not... To not, uh, join, not be a policeman, uh, not, not do anything that would allow us to be violent or hold guns or anything like that. I would say that Jesus makes a clear distinction between individual, interpersonal relationships and political realities. Certainly the Apostle Paul does. When you read Romans chapter 13 verses 1 and following, Paul says this about governing authorities and the purpose of military and police in the world. Listen to what he says in Romans 13 verse 1. For he is God's servant for good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He goes on to tell Christians you need to pay taxes. You need to submit to governing political authorities. And that governments and governing authorities exist to bear the sword. To go kill evildoers. Police, military, and so forth. They exist to go... And destroy evildoers. Hallelujah for that. Thank you, God, for instituting that. Thank you, God, for giving us governments to protect our borders, to go find bad guys and put them into jail and kill terrorists. Hallelujah. Amen. God, guns and guts, made America free. Can I get an amen? You see, there's a difference. There's a difference between the church and there's a difference between the state. The church is composed of disciples who exist To help people find God and forgiveness and transformation and healing. And the government exists to make sure that justice is instituted within the borders of a government. And we are called to pray for both. That the government would do what it's supposed to do. That the church would do what it's supposed to do. And as individuals, as disciples, we follow Jesus with nonviolence. But sometimes as disciples, we're called to join the military. And in that context, we can bear a gun as we're with the army. Or we can join the police and be a policeman. we got policemen in our church. Hallelujah, thank God for them who go and help our citizens and, and go catch bad guys so that we can all live safely and raise our families and so forth and so on. There's a difference. When Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about his his disciples in their interpersonal relationships. I hope that helps you as you deal with some of those objections that might come up. I know that they don't that this argument doesn't make the the case perfectly, but I hope that begins to help you. So when we come back to Matthew chapter 5, we're thinking about it in our interpersonal, personal, self-sacrificing discipleship. And we can see that Jesus wants us to think about this in very individual, personal ways as he talks about non-retaliation and non-violence. And in particular, what I'd like to do is look at each of the examples he gives of self-sacrifice to more clearly picture for you this self-denying discipleship he's calling to us to. And so let me look at the four. He gives us four examples of non-retaliation. These are all very vivid. The first example he gives to us is, turn the other cheek. He talks about this in verse 39. Look at it one more time. But I say to you, now he's not getting rid of the old law. He's just wanting us to go deeper into what God is expecting. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That is the evil person who's hurting you, harming you, who's offended you. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, in the Greek, it's even more graphic. The the picture, when he says slap, he's using a word that's talking about an open-handed slap. Now, most people, and this is nothing against left-handed people. We love you. Jesus loves left-handed people. Can I get an amen? He loves you. Don't write me an email. Don't do it. That would be silly. All right? Most people are right-handed, though, and, and and so Jesus is giving us a picture, a very vivid, visceral picture of an open-handed hit across, literally, the word is jawbone, the right jawbone. That would mean that since most people are right-handed, Jesus is picturing somebody slapping you right across the face, which is one of the most, especially in the ancient world, to get hit with an open-handed backhand, that's the most humiliating, most devastating thing that could happen to you publicly is to get hit. And I bet you Jesus, because he was a great communicator, I bet you he actually motioned it when he did it. He said, if anybody, wham, hits you across the right jawbone, turn to him the other. Jesus not only wants us to intellectually understand the idea of self-sacrifice, he wants us to almost feel it, to experience it. And I don't know if you've ever been hit. But being hit is a humiliating thing that happens. I've been hit before. Maybe you've been hit. Maybe some of you, maybe you've even been abused in situations. Maybe that vivid illustration really brings up some really horrible memories. We have to remember that Jesus is talking in a context of discipleship. And he's not giving us rigid rules to follow. He's giving us principles to use in our imagination as we think about how to wisely apply timely truths to timely circumstances. There's no way in the world that Jesus is calling a battered wife to stay in a household where she's in physical danger. There's no way in the world that Jesus would say you got to stay in there and continue to turn the other cheek and continue to get abused. Jesus would want you to get safe. Jesus would want you to find refuge. Jesus would want you to make sure that you're not being harmed at all. Furthermore, I don't think Jesus in any way is telling us that if we see somebody being hit, if we see somebody who's being abused, I don't think Jesus is saying, don't get involved in that. Don't go save that person. Don't go protect that person. In fact, I bet you Jesus would want you and I, if possible, to physically intervene and save somebody. Take this in the context in which he's saying it. Take it in the same context where he told us, if you're struggling with lust, cut out your eye and chop off your arm. He's not literally telling us to lop off arms and cut out our eyes. He's giving us vivid illustrations to talk about our personal, interpersonal relationships with people. And so therefore, understanding it as a vivid example, he's saying we need to peacefully deal with problems. When we're being abused. Perhaps. Perhaps it means. That if a wife is being abused. She needs to go find safety. In another home. But still. Isn't she still called. To pray. That her husband will be changed. Isn't it true that if we're being abused by somebody, our heart isn't to go, I hope they get it back. I hope that they get exactly what I got. Or isn't it true of all forgiven Christians that our call is to pray that people will be changed and so turn the other cheek emotionally, turn the other cheek figuratively. Now, I'm not saying either that this might not apply in a literal situation. For example, Jesus said in the Beatitudes to great introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted by other people because the prophets were persecuted. And it very well might be that we are entering a time when being a Christian will lead to our physical being harmed, physically being hurt by other people. And physically we need to apply this and turn the other cheek. If you read the book of Acts, you read the first Christians and and what happened to them is they had to apply this physically. Physically. They got the, the apostles, remember, remember, we, by the way, for those of you who don't know, we spent like 10 years in the book of Acts. I don't know if you know that. It was pretty sweet. But one of the things we studied in the book of Acts, and we went through that verse by verses, we saw that the early Christians got arrested, they got beat, they got thrown into jail, and do you know, not one time did they get a group of, of people to, or a mob to physically respond or to, or to say, we're going to strike back or we're going to fight back, or they would, they would literally take the beating. They would literally allow people to arrest them, and then they would preach the gospel. This example of turning the other cheek is for our imagination. It's a vivid, vivid picture that's not to be limited to physical issues, but certainly it could involve physical issues. So the first example is turn the other cheek. The second example he gives of our personal, interpersonal self-sacrifice and self-denial that he wants us to give is he says, give up your clothes. Give up your clothes. He says in verse 40, look at it carefully. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, I know you guys have a closet full of great tunics, let them have your cloak as well. Now, what, What is a tunic? A tunic is your inside shirt, right? It's your inside shirt. And what would happen is, is if you were a debt if you were in debt to somebody and your debtors came to collect, you couldn't give them money, take you to the judge and sue you. And sometimes the judge would say, "Oh, you don't have any money. We'll give them your tunic." And so you would take out the outer garment. You give them your tunic, and then you cover up your underwear with your outer garment again. You see what I'm saying? He says, give them your tunic. So that's typically what happened. But Jesus goes further than what any judge would allow. Jesus says, if they take your inside shirt, then give them your cloak as well. And the cloak is the outer garment that covers most of your body. Now, what you don't know, which in Exodus 22, which I won't go there now, but God said it was an inalienable right that every individual had a right to their outer garment. Why? because it was long and if you were poor the only way that would protect you from the elements at night was your outer garment it was like your blanket in some cases it was your roof over your head it was your bed it was your comforter it was your it was your blanket that you would cover up with jesus in again growing vividness is he saying hey if somebody takes your shirt Give them your blanket. Give them your bed. Give them your house. Give them the roof over your head. Give them the very things that protect you from the elements outside. Give them everything. How vivid is that? He's saying that our life is to be marked by stripped-down humility. Such a radical humility that we would be willing to go the extra distance in giving the very clothes off of our back And offering them our inalienable right to protection. How humiliating that is. That's a very humbling thing, isn't it? Can you imagine being nearly naked? Giving up most of your clothes. Being down to the loincloths of life. That's so vivid. I remember the other day, somebody stopped by my house unexpected. You know... About, we, we eat around the table about three or four times a week. But there are some nights when we're all going so many different directions, you know what I mean? And you just get home and you just start eating. Like, I come home and I'm like, hamburger helper! And I just start throwing it down. I love hamburger helper, by the way. We love hamburger helper. i throw in a hamburger helper. And I'm usually wearing a shirt like this when I come home. And so sometimes if we're not... Having family time around the table. I'll just start eating. And what I'll do is I'll just shed this shirt. And I'll just be in my undershirt. You know what I mean? So there's Pastor Josh. Undershirt and hamburger helper. You know what I mean? And somebody stopped by unexpectedly. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> and so they come into the house. And I'm the whole time I'm like, hello. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for stopping by. We love you. And there's Pastor Josh holding. Because I was just. It wasn't that I was revealing anything, it was just I kind of felt, you know, exposed. <laughs> you know what I mean? And 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 it was humiliating, but can you imagine the humiliation of what Jesus is calling disciples to? A stripped down naked humility before people and for people. That's crazy. We think Jesus might lighten up a little bit here in the next illustration, but he doesn't. In fact, it gets even worse. By now, we've been struck across the right jawbone. By now, we are literally stripped of our clothes. We are humiliated in our nakedness. We are filled with shame. And then he says in his third example, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The Jewish people lived in occupied territory, and they were living in occupied territory by Rome. And all throughout Palestine, the Roman soldiers ruled. And one of the laws in Roman law is that a Roman soldier could come and force you to do physical labor for for them at any point in time in your day. You could be in the middle of your work day, and a Roman soldier could come and force you to walk his horse to some food. Force you to carry a cross for somebody they wanted to execute. Force you in the middle of your day to do exactly what they wanted to do. In fact, the same word that's used here in the Greek language for force is the same word that's used for Simon of Cyrene in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 32. Which states, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man, that is, they forced him, to carry his cross. That was Roman law. You could do that at any point in time. There's Simon of Cyrene. He's just doing his thing. There's Jesus being crucified. And they force him. You're going to come. You're going to walk this cross for us. And he had to do it. Imagine how humiliating that might be for a man. There's a Jewish man, and he's working his field. He's trying to make a living. He's, trying, he's hoping that he'll have enough bread for the family for the evening. And maybe he's got his young son with him and he's trying to mentor his son and how to do the trade that's going to keep the family alive. And right in the middle of his day when he's doing the very thing that men were created to do. And he's teaching his son. A Roman soldier comes and says, Hey, Jew, pick up this and take it up that hill. And you got to stop in the middle of your day. Be humiliated in front of your son. Be humiliated as a man to be forced to do something for a soldier of an occupied enemy. That's the vivid picture Jesus is giving. Jesus is saying to his disciples. If a Roman soldier comes and makes you go one mile. Ask him at the end of that mile. Do you need another? If a Roman soldier comes and forces you to do something for him. Ask him is there anything else I can do? This is how vivid Jesus Is getting. By this time, we're beat up. We've got no clothes. Our dignity, our liberty has been stolen from us. And the final thing is we lose all of our money. God help us. Verse 42 Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, again, if we were to take this literally, we would not have a one cent in our bank, would we not? I mean, how many people do we see every day who are begging for money? Every time you saw a panhandler on the street asking for money, you would have to give money to them. Every time you stopped at Walgreens to buy the wedding anniversary gift, can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> and there you are, Walgreens, getting your beautiful bride, something really romantic. <laughs> Little fake... <laughs> little candle with the little waterfall, you know, (laughs) plug it into the wall. has a little light, glows at night. Mm. (laughs) Beautiful. And you go up there with your little gift for anniversary at Walgreens because it's the greatest store in the world, and you put it on the counter. And you know what you always get asked at the end of any transaction now at any store? Do you want to give a dollar for St. Jude? Do you want to give a a dollar for the dog missing an eye? Do you want to give a dollar for whatever. And you know what, Jesus, if we we take this literally, we would have to give the dollar every single time. Thus, we would end up broke. Thus, now we don't have any clothes. We got a bruise on our face. We've had to go extra miles. Nobody looks at us. We have to practice a bravery that, by the way, doesn't look very brave at all when we're submitting to soldiers. And now we're giving up all of our money in this radical generosity that Jesus is telling us to do. Obviously. Wisdom is required to apply these examples appropriately. Not rigid rules, but principles to guide our interpersonal relationships. Principles to guide how we relate to one another. And so when we think about it and we pull it all together, I, I, I can't help but think that there is nothing less There is nothing less here than the heavy beams of the cross. There is nothing less than cross-bearing in all of our relationships. There is nothing less profound than radical... Self-denial and in particular if I could put it in one sentence one crisp idea that you can take home with you what Jesus is communicating is he's saying that personal rights can no longer be the basis of your relationships that the basis of your relationships now as believers must be the cross of Jesus Christ. Before we knew Jesus, before we knew God, we made our rights the very basis by which our relationships might or could work. Now that we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, it is the cross and the message of the cross that is to guide how we relate to human beings. Let me tell you three things in closing about the cross that will help you in this self-sacrifice. Self-denial, cross-bearing, Basis of all your relationships. How does the cross help us with self sacrifice? Number one, the cross is the power for self sacrifice. Seeing Jesus, believing Jesus with an enlightened mind and heart as dying for your sins is the very power that makes this possible in your relationships. When Jesus first preached this sermon on the mount the first audience that ever heard it was a crowd on a hill but the second audience that ever heard this sermon it was read in a book to a church in antioch matthew put this sermon in here for the church he put this sermon in here to be read by people who already knew what happens at the end and what happens at the end of Jesus' story He is taken an extra mile up that hill. He bears the cross. He's stripped down naked. He's slapped across the face. He's he's spat upon. And therefore, the very first church that looked at this book verse by verse, they knew that Jesus was preaching the gospel before the gospel. Jesus was the most gospel-centered, gospel-saturated preacher and teacher that's ever existed even before he fulfilled the gospel. Isaiah himself knew what would happen, knew that the servant of God, the Messiah of God, would not only bear the sins of the world, but Isaiah was given visions of what that servant would go through, which sounds a lot like this law of non-retaliation. In fact, let me give you an example. Isaiah, and Isaiah chapter 50, verses... 6 through 10. It says in a prophecy about the Messiah, which Jesus obviously fulfills I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Jesus, his beard was pulled. His face was slapped. He was spat upon. We see that fulfilled in the very gospel of Matthew. Not only was Jesus beat and stripped But his clothes were sold, weren't they? John chapter 19, verses 23 and following. It says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments... Now, beloved, the only way, listen to me, the only way you and I are made right with God is by believing that Jesus took our sins on the cross, that by his stripes we are healed, that that outward manifestation of his beating and his his jawbone being hit, the outward manifestation of that is our inward condition that must be atoned for by the death of Jesus Christ. Scripture says that our human nature is such. I know some of you don't believe this, but you've got to embrace this for your own relationship health. Listen to me. The Bible says that if you and I would have been there, we have such a human nature that given the same environment, given the same circumstances, we would have been the one that slapped him. We would have been the one that cried out, crucify him. We would have been more than happy to be that Roman soldier that held that hammer, put that nail right into his hands and pounded it into the cross because we're sinful and we're in rebellion against God. And yet God, even though we had hateful sin, he came in the person of Jesus. He died in my place so that I could be confident and secure in forgiveness have you been forgiven by jesus do you look to the cross for your security with god or are you looking to your religion or how charming you are or how great you are or how many rules you keep or are you looking to jesus alone to give you security and assurance in your salvation that is the key because people who understand that they're greatly forgiven become great forgivers can i get an amen People who are secured in God become very secure in their relationships. I don't need as much from my enemy when I've been forgiven as the enemy of God, when I've been made a friend of God, when I've been reconciled to God. You see, the cross is the power of God for our self-sacrifice, to go the extra mile, to give the extra piece of clothing, to practice radical generosity, to go all that God gives to us And to deny ourselves and pick up his cross. The cross is the power for self-sacrifice. But secondly, the cross is the example. The cross is the example for our self-sacrifice. Ultimately, and I've got to go quickly now because I've gone long again. You're like, he did it again. He does it again and again and again and again. He's just a little guy that talks too much. This is what he does. And I got places to go, and he's still up there talking, and now he's talking about the fact that he's talking too much. And that's really annoying. This guy is really annoying. The second thing about the cross is that it's the example for self sacrifice. Now, quickly, let me explain it to you this way. Here's what the cross teaches us that we can hate sin, but love the sinner. Hate sin. Jesus, note this, Jesus never says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have to like injustice. you got to love it when people hit you on the face. Oh, goody, I got hit on the face. Thank you, Jesus, I got hit again. Hit me again, please. Like, he never says that. We're to hate cruelty. We're to hate hatred. We're to hate sin. But the cross teaches us to love the sinner. And that's significant because, you know what, here's the truth about my own heart. Without the cross... Not only do I hate the sin, but because the sinner sins, I really don't like the sinner. And I hope that the sinner gets what they deserve. But with the cross, I'm humbled. And I remember that the cross teaches me that God hates sin. God hates injustices. God hates darkness and evil and Satan and all of those things. And yet the cross also teaches me that God loves sinners. That God loves lost, broken people. That God loves people who can't figure it out. Who aren't smart enough or wise enough or or willing enough to figure it out. That God embraces those who can't save themselves. And he loves them so much that he wants to deliver them from the bondages and the things that destroy their lives lives and the things that they do to destroy the lives of others this is what the cross teaches us and therefore this is how we must walk as disciples this is our example c.s lewis said it like this he says it so much better than i could again on his chapter on forgiveness from the book mere christianity he says this he says so apparently i'm allowed to loathe and hate some of the things my enemies do Now that I come to think about it, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions, but not hate the bad man, or as they could say, hate the sin, but not the sinner. For a long time, I used to think this is silly, straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later, it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself however much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed I went on loving myself there had never been the slightest difficulty about it in fact the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man just because I loved myself I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things consequently Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery we ought to hate them Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid. But it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. Being sorry that the man should have done such things. And hoping if it is any way possible that somehow, sometime, somewhere he can be cured and made human again. And beloved, that's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, bar none. The ability to hate injustice but to hope, to pray that the sinner will be changed because we've been changed and we are being changed. The cross is the power for our self-sacrifice. The cross of Jesus is the example for our self-sacrifice. And here's the final thing. The cross of Jesus is the crown for our self-sacrifice. It's the crown for our self-sacrifice. Now, I'm going to go into this a little bit more next week. Next week is Father's Day. And mamas, I'm going, to bring it, I'm going to bring it to the dads really hard and good. You might remember that on Mother's Day, I preached on anger. Do you mothers remember that? And you're like, how dare he? Mother's Day, and he talked about anger. You know what I mean? And you got angry about it, didn't you? See? <laughs> But now what's going to happen is next week, it's Father's Day, and they're going to get it just as hard as you did. So don't worry, mamas, and we're going to talk about this. But here's the thing. The cross is the crown. What's that mean, the crown? You see, before I knew God, before I knew Jesus, you know who I lived for? Me. I was God. It was about my crown, my rewards, my trophies, my things. It was about my dignity, my self-worth, my self-esteem. It was all about my glory. And my whole life was trying to build a crown that I could hold up and say, do you see how important I am? Do you see how, how talented I am? Do you see how, how needed I am? How wanted I am? Here's my crown. And yet when I got forgiven by the cross, my story was no longer about me. My story became about the glory of God. My life now is no longer holding up my own esteem, my own trophies, my own self-worth. My life is now about holding up the God-worth of God, the, the, the glory of God, the crown of God. And listen to me. What's God's greatest crown? What's his greatest achievement? What is the greatest display of the glorious majesty of God? It's Jesus on a cross. God is most glorified in the death of Jesus for sinners. There's nothing more glorious in its manifestation of God's glory than the cross. God is glorified by the fact that He's the Creator. He created all the galaxies. He created all the stars. He names them all. He created the heavens and the earth. He created water and land and birds and He created order and He created the choreography that staggers the mind that we see in nature every single day. But it is nothing in comparison to the eternal God descending to the incarnation, walking planet earth, fulfilling His own law in our place, dying on the cross and defeating death, thus displaying His love for righteousness and His love for unrighteous people, this is his greatest crown. And therefore, this is our greatest opportunity to glorify God. Our greatest opportunity to glorify God is when we drop the grudge. When we go the extra mile and forgive one another. When we, when we put our wives before ourselves, husbands. When wives, you put your husbands before yourselves. When parents, you love your children in a way that grows them up. When children, you honor your parents. Every time you offer up your own life and put others before you, you are glorifying the very message of the cross. When you reach out to others, when you share the faith with other people, that is the crown of God. And that is your crown if you're a believer. The cross is the crown For our self-sacrifice. More on that next week. Let's pray.